Sunday morning. Um, good morning if you're gathered here with us in church, in person, and good morning to you, uh, everyone on Zoom, wherever you are. Um, it's great to have you uh, with us this morning. Um, if you'd like prayer after the service, um, please uh, phone uh, Nigel um, on the mobile number, which uh, it came up at the uh, beginning of the service, and there it is again on, on the screen. So if you'd like uh, to, to um, be put into a breakout room for prayer, then please do uh, text or call Nigel at the end of the service. I'm going to begin uh, with a psalm of praise, which just sets the scene for our worship. So Psalm 95 says this, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you that you are our loving God and that we are your sheep and that you know each one of us by name. And uh, Father, we thank you that you are good, that you are for us, that you are sovereign. And as we come now to worship you, the King of Kings, Majesty, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to worship in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, and uh, sorry we can't sing uh, in here, but uh, please do kind of sing along in your mind or however you do it, I don't know, but we're going to, uh, to be led in worship. Thank you. Let's stand. Justice. 
What a powerful name it is. Nothing can stand against. What a powerful name it is. The name of Jesus.
time now of open praise um, and thanksgiving. So if you'd like to, uh, to, to unmute yourselves online and just uh, lead us in prayers of adoration and praise and thanksgiving. If you're in here in church, uh, if you'd like to pray, just uh, please put up your hand and uh, Tony will come around with the mic so that you can be heard by everybody. Please be seated if you're Please raise your hand in here if you'd like to pray. Jesus and his disciples went to a city called Nain. And as they approached, a man who had died, the only son of a widow, was being carried out. Jesus had compassion on the mother, and touching the bier, he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and fear seized them all. Sometime later, at Jairus' house, Jesus took three disciples and the parents inside and said to the girl who had died, Child, arise and her spirit returned to her, and she stood up. Could it not be seen that Jesus was master over death? Then there was Lazarus, four days in the tomb, and yet still not re still returned to life. How could disciples not understand Jesus' message that he would return to them after three days? Sing praises to the Lord. His knowledge far exceeds our understanding. My Lord, you are my God, Lord. And we just thank you for that sacrifice that you made on that Easter Sunday, on that Good Friday, and that you rose again on Easter Sunday, Lord. We just thank you that you alone are worthy of all honor and praise and glory. We just thank you that we can come before you to declare that you're our Lord, you're our God, and we love you, Lord. Hallelujah. Praise your name, Lord. Amen. We've been singing, the mountains will bow down. And Father, we thank you, our help comes from you. We look at the mountains in our life. Father, we recognize there's been a big chasm between us and you, your son on that cross. Close that chasm that we may have a relationship with you afresh. So we thank you what you've done for us, Father. Our hearts, our spirits sing hallelujah you've done for us in Christ. Amen. We continue in uh, prayer, uh, praying for our nation at this and our queen at this time. She mourns the, the loss of her husband, 
and also those uh, known to you in the fellowship, wherever you worship. Um, just an opportunity now to bring prayers of petition and intercession for our nation and for our world, for persecuted church, for our fellowships. Um, so as the Spirit leads you, please lead us in prayers of petition and intercession. Lord, in our own fellowship, we continue to pray for, for Joan Presnell as she uh, uh, has treatment uh, to have the pins removed in her hand on Tuesday morning at hospital. Pray, Lord, your blessing on, on that. Father, we, we thank you for answered prayer for, for Josh Hayes. Um, Lord, thank you for bringing him through the chemotherapy. And Lord, we thank you that he's still strong and doing well and we pray lord that you would continue to to watch over him and uh lord just that you, your blessing of healing would continue to to be upon him lord for those who mourn we we lift up before you frida's uh, family this morning as they prepare for for the funeral also for uh, terry terry jaffrey's aunt too and their family lord we, we ask you to comfort those who mourn at this time Lord, thinking as well of our own queen as she mourns the loss of uh, her husband. Lord, thank you for uh, his faith and for the faith of Queen Elizabeth. And Lord, we, we just pray that that heritage of supporting uh, ministries and uh, would, would continue uh, through, through the Duke of Edinburgh's work. Lord, we, we pray for the queen that you would comfort her at this sad time. And that, Lord, you would continue, she would know your comfort and peace through the strengthening of her faith. In Jesus' name. Amen. Father, we pray for Pat Lemon, and uh, we thank you for the operation that she's had, but we pray that you will bring her back to, to full health and strength, and that uh, yeah, any, any sign of cancer there will be, will, will be no more, Lord. Um, would you please uh, bring back her appetite uh, and, and just help her to, to get strong and to, to recover fully? But above all, may she know that you are with her in this time. And uh, would you also be with, with Mike and um, Rob and Tracy and the rest of the family? We thank you for them. Amen. Amen. And so, Lord, as we come to hear from your word now, um, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand the scriptures this morning and to see you Jesus in your risen glory and to encounter you in your risen glory and to be changed by your living word to us so Lord come now we pray and minister your grace through your word in Jesus name 
Amen. So Pauline's going to come and read uh, for us this morning. Thank you, Pauline. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognised by them when he broke the bread. Thank you so much, uh, Pauline, for, for reading that uh, so beautifully. Appreciate that. So um, this, is the, this is the evening of... Um, Easter Sunday, you're saying, no, it's not, it's a week later, but, you know, bear with me. That's where we are. We're on the road with Jesus on the evening of uh, Easter Sunday. 
uh, I mentioned this last week, but some people today claim that uh, the gospel writers were able to invent the resurrection of Jesus because people back then were more superstitious and more likely to believe this kind of thing. Um, people say that today we're, we're much more rational people, we have a greater scientific understanding, and that any ancient accounts of resurrection must therefore be myths invented by Jesus' disciples long after they actually happened. But this account in Luke is more evidence that the um, account of the resurrection of Jesus is historical and trustworthy. Um, the unbelief of the disciples in not expecting to meet Jesus, not expecting the resurrection, is entirely consistent with what you would expect Jews at the time to believe. In other words, they didn't believe in a personal resurrection. Despite, as Alan um, mentioned earlier in, in his scripture reading, despite seeing Jesus raise a number of people from the dead, including the widow of Nain's son and Lazarus, they still didn't expect um, resurrection uh, for the individual person. And they certainly didn't expect a Messiah would die and then rise again. The Messiah, of course, was in Jewish understanding that God's chosen king who would live forever and reign on David's throne forever and restore the kingdom of Israel on earth and overthrow the Roman oppressors. So the idea of a Messiah dying a cursed death on a cross was not something that they would expect or understand or even contemplate or certainly believe in. They had seen Jesus breathe his last breath on the cross and, and they had heard him say to his father, into your hands I commend my spirit. They'd seen him dead and even buried in a tomb. And so in their eyes, hopes of a Messiah were, were long gone. Hopes of a Messiah had died with Jesus on the cross. And that's why these two are downcast on the road. Do you notice Luke records that they were downcast because all their hopes of a, of a Messiah had been dashed. Jesus had died. Even the reports of the women of an empty tomb, which were backed up by the disciples, still weren't enough to convince them that the resurrection could have happened for Jesus. One commentator, James Edwards, in his Luke commentary says this, the thought of a suffering Messiah was foreign to pre-Christian first century Judaism. No Old Testament text and no pre-Christian Jewish text that we know of associates suffering with the Messiah. True, the servant of the Lord text in Isaiah 52 and 53 depicts a suffering righteous one, but the servant of the Lord is never identified as Messiah. And Judaism never understood servant of the Lord text to refer to Messiah. So they never made the link between Jesus' suffering and death and him being the Messiah. Partly because, of course, they didn't believe in the resurrection. And so if Jesus died, he couldn't be the king reigning on David's throne for eternity. It was actually a complicated picture. Jews at the time had various strands of belief and different, they believed in different figures who at the end would appear to deliver God's chosen people. They hoped for a great prophet in the line of Moses. 
And the two disciples describe Jesus as a great prophet here on the road, don't they? They call, they say he was a great prophet. They hope for a great king, a Messiah who would reign forever on David's throne. They hope for a servant figure who would proclaim God's hope and yet suffer. But the Jews didn't bring all of these ideas into one person who, who would be the suffering Messiah and a great prophet at the same time. They would never have thought of combining all of these different roles into one person. And the Jews generally believed in a general resurrection at the very end of the age when um, God renews the heavens and the earth, but they didn't believe in um, individual resurrection. And this account of unbelief in the resurrection of Jesus is kind of a comedy value, isn't it? Because the two on the road are telling Jesus, the one that they're talking about and not recognising, all about what's happened to Jesus, as if he doesn't know. It's kind of um, quite comedic, isn't it, this, this narration in Luke. And the despondency of the disciples and their unbelief has all the hallmarks of, of an authentic historical account. If you were Luke making this stuff up, would you really show the disciples as so slow to understand and unbelieving of the resurrection? They actually, are, they actually respond as you would typically expect Jews to respond at the time, with unbelief. They are despondent. They are grieving for their lost hopes. So this is not a myth. This is real history. Luke wants to show us that the resurrection of Jesus can and does lead to a personal encounter with Jesus. I don't know where you are on the road today with Jesus. Perhaps you're somebody who has heard about Jesus in sermons, even read some of the Bible. Perhaps you went to Sunday school. But I just want to ask you the question today. Have you ever encountered him personally and become friends with him? Have you ever experienced him and come to know him as your personal friend and saviour? Well, this is what Luke is saying in this passage, that it's possible not just to know that or believe that Jesus is risen, but to know him as your friend. You can have a relationship with Jesus because he's risen. But there's more application for those of us who are believers, who are Christians. Even when we become downcast like these two disciples on the road, by life's struggles and difficulties, the reality of Jesus' resurrection can change our sorrow to hope and joy. Our hearts can burn with the presence of Jesus, even in the face of suffering and difficulty, when we are open to encounter him. Um, however, if our hearts are closed off and we've decided that Jesus is no longer with us and he's abandoned us, then we probably won't recognize him when he's there, a bit like these two uh, disciples. So there's two, uh, two things that I think uh, Luke wants to show us about how the resurrection changed the disciples' unbelief to belief. So number one, um, seeing that the Messiah had to die uh, and rise again in all the scriptures. Um, 
Jesus opens up the whole Bible to, uh, to the disciples and shows them how right from Genesis, presumably, with the, uh, the serpent's head being crushed, right through all of the Old Testament, the, the whole of the Old Testament points to a Messiah who will suffer and die and rise again. And there are passages, aren't there, in the Old Testament that speak of resurrection. You think of Daniel chapter 12 that speaks of the resurrection of the dead. And um, Psalm 16 speaks of resurrection too. And Jesus would, went through all of these passages in Isaiah 52 and 53, presumably, about the suffering servant to show them that the Messiah was the suffering servant who had to die and rise again from the dead. We're not told, actually, which passages Jesus went through with them, but he shows them that all of the scriptures are fulfilled in him, united in him. And this is, this is what Jesus uh, led them through. How foolish you are and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to... Uh, just waiting for this to change. Have to suffer these things and then enter his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So all of the scriptures are about Jesus. Um, so Jesus is saying, look, I'm the great prophet in the line of Moses. I'm the son of David, reigning on the throne of David for eternity. I'm the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. I'm the son of man. All of these roles are fulfilled and united in me. Um, when you read the Bible, I don't know how you read the Bible, but we should be looking for Jesus in all of the scriptures. Um, Charles Spurgeon once described it a bit like this. He said that um, uh, if you think of Jesus as the metropolis like London, eventually, if you keep following all these back roads, wherever you are in the country, you will get to London. You will get to the metropolis, to Jesus. And that's true of scripture. If you follow all the little byways and highways, you will find Jesus in all the scriptures. Will you say, yeah, but I'm in um, a really hard-hitting prophetic book at the moment, and I can't see Jesus there. I've, I've been reading through Obadiah, which is pretty hard-hitting. It's all about judgment. But actually, we can see Jesus in all the scriptures if we are prepared to, to ask. So where, where you've got um, hard-hitting prophetic books like Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Obadiah, we remember that actually all of this judgment that sounds so hard and harsh has been poured out. God's judgment has been poured out on Jesus on the cross. And the good news of these prophetic books is if we will turn to God, turn to Jesus, God's judgment doesn't fall on our sin. It's fallen on Jesus on the cross who bore the curse of our sin for us in our place as our substitute. And so you can read these hard scriptures in the Old Testament with the lens of the cross and the resurrection and see Jesus there, wherever you are in the scriptures. All the law, all the stuff in Leviticus and Deuteronomy points forward to Jesus who fulfilled the law. So wherever you are in scripture, look through the lens of the cross and resurrection and see Jesus there. Now the disciples are fully engaged. When Jesus has been opening the scriptures to them, 
Um, they want more of this stuff. Their hearts are burning um, and they want more. So when Jesus says he's going on somewhere else, they say, no, stay with us. Stay with us. Have, have dinner with us. And at this point, there comes the great turning point in the story. Verse 30. When he was at table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. This thing is a little bit, uh, let's try that. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. So as he broke bread and gave it to them and shared it with them, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Now that's not so surprising, is it? Because Jesus has done this before, hasn't he? When he fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes, Luke records that he he took bread and he broke it and he shared it with the crowds as he shared the fish. Um, there we are. No, that's not it. Yeah, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. And then again at the Last Supper, Luke twenty-two nineteen, he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do you notice there's the same actions here? He presumably would have, he looked to heaven, he blessed the bread, he broke it and he gave it to them and shared it with them. And it was in those actions that they suddenly saw that Jesus was among them, that he really had risen. It, it took something visual for them to see that. Uh, but we learned that before that, their hearts had been burning while he opened up the scriptures to them on the road. So something was going on in them prior to him sharing bread with them. Yes, they recognized him finally and fully as he broke bread, just as he'd done before. But their hearts were burning already as he opened up the scriptures to them. And Jesus had showed these two disciples from the scriptures that the suffering servant was also the Messiah, God's chosen king, that he was embodying those two roles, that he really was risen from the dead, just as he said to them three times earlier in the gospel. Secondly, um, seeing the risen Jesus changed their hearts. Sorry, let's go back. What's going on with this? We'll have to look at the battery, I think. It's not. There we go. Second, experiencing the risen Jesus changed their hearts. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? The disciples were transformed from having downcast hearts through understanding that Jesus was risen. You see, the resurrection was the bridge that opened their eyes so that they could understand to see who Jesus was. Why? Because the resurrection made it possible for a suffering servant to be the Messiah. They could only make sense of Jesus' death when they saw it in the light of the resurrection. The death of Jesus on the cross makes no sense, does it, without the resurrection. If Jesus is dead, he's not alive, right? And he can't, we can't have a relationship with him. We can't encounter him personally if he's still dead. And because they encountered him personally, 
Jesus changed their hearts. So I just want to ask you this morning, where are you on the journey with Jesus? Perhaps you've heard about the cross before, that Jesus died for your sin, to pay the penalty for your sin. Perhaps you've heard that about the empty tomb, that Jesus' body wasn't there, and that there were reports of his resurrection. Perhaps you even believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But what difference does it make to you? Have you put Jesus' death for your sins and the resurrection of Jesus together so that you understand that through those two things, you can know Jesus as your friend and saviour? Have you put those things together? And when you do, when you realise that Jesus died and rose again, not just to pay for your sins so that you can know God, but that he's alive and he's poured out his Holy Spirit so that you can have God's presence living in you, and you come to Jesus and you say, I want this, Jesus will enter your heart through his Holy Spirit. You will have the risen Christ living in you if you turn to him and believe in him. What about you? Have you ever prayed that prayer where you've invited Jesus to come into your heart? You can do that today. Why don't you, at the end of the service, if you're that person who's not yet come to know Jesus personally, why don't you pray with the person you've come with and just take a moment. I'm sure we can allow somebody to come to Christ this morning under COVID regulations, can't we? Right? <laughs> we can do that. That's all right. I'm sure I'll be released from <laughs> condemnation for this by Jesus at the end. It, why don't you turn to Christ this morning and pray with, pray with the, the person who's come and invite him into your heart? Why wait? Um, but for us as believers, there's also a challenge here. The two disciples were downcast because of bad theology, right? Their theology was bad. They didn't believe in a Messiah who would suffer and then rise from the grave. They wanted a Messiah who would reign forever and overthrow the Romans. It was more of a political thing. But Jesus has come with a far bigger agenda in mind. He's come to liberate people, not just from the Romans, but from sin and death and bring them into eternal life. So how, how do Christians have bad theology then? Well, let me explain. Sometimes we can be blinded to the presence and truth of who Jesus really is and his risen power. How so, you say, Martin? Well, have you ever been downcast as a Christian? Right? Do we, do we ever get downcast? Sometimes we do. Sometimes for good reason. You know, if you've, if you've grieved the loss of a loved one, it's entirely appropriate, of course, that we are downcast and that we grieve their loss. Absolutely right to do that. But there are occasions when we are despondent and doubting and because of bad theology. What do I mean by that? I mean that we do theology based on our circumstances rather than on the empty cross and the empty tomb. Ever been there? I have. You look at the wind and the waves and you take your eyes off the empty tomb and the empty cross and you start to sink just like Peter as he got out of the boat, right? You see, if we look at our circumstances as the basis of our faith, we will sink like Peter when he took his eyes off Jesus. 
The wind and the waves will overwhelm us. Um, you and I, as Christians, will sometimes feel overwhelmed in life. Sometimes the wheels come off, don't they? Sometimes things don't go the way we'd hoped. Sometimes we're going, Lord, I don't understand what on earth you're doing here. And it's painful. There are good doubts which turn us towards God and with cries like the psalmist, my God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? That's still a cry of trust, by the way, because we're addressing my God, right, in prayer. So you can have good doubts where you say, Lord, where are you? Lord, how long will you forget me? That's what the psalmist says. That's a cry to God. That's a cry that's towards God because it's addressing God as my God or Lord. That's, that's good doubt. That's to say, Lord, I'm not experiencing you right now. Lord, it hurts right now. But Lord, I want you to break into my experience my god my god why have you forsaken me is a cry of help and it's doubt but it's good doubt bad doubt on the other hand is lord we'd never say this out loud by the way it all goes on in the head doesn't it we would never admit to to these thoughts well i don't <laughs> just as well really isn't it sometimes we get bad doubt we we kind of, uh, the reasoning in our head goes something like this. Lord, you should never have let this happen. If you were a good and a loving and an all-sovereign and powerful creator and king of my life, you would have never let this happen. And instead of crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In a place of good doubt and faith, we go down, we sink and we play the woe is me game. Ever played woe is me? That kind of poor old me, pity me thing that we do. Lord, you've forgotten me. You're blessing everybody else but me. Why is it always me that has to go through all of this? Other people seem to do better than me in life. Have you forgotten me, Lord? Have you missed me out of the blessing? And we allow our circumstances and struggles and trials to judge who we now see God as. In other words, we start seeing God as a harsh judge, an unloving father who's missed us out from blessing. We, we, we can all do this, can't we? We can all judge God as unloving and not in control and that he's forgotten us. That's what we call bad doubting. There is good doubt and there is bad doubt. And bad doubt can blind us to the truth. When we look at the wind and the waves, when we take our eyes off Jesus, we go down. We become downcast like the two disciples. But Jesus is always with us. You see, the Jesus who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross, really was forsaken by his father, right? He really was. Because he, the sin, your sin and my sin that held him there, cut him off from God. And Jesus hung there in the darkness, in agony, 
and was forsaken precisely so that you and I would never, ever be forsaken. That's God's love for you and me. So what do you do when you see the wind and the waves and you start to sink, you start to become despondent? You look at the cross and you see it's empty. And you look at the tomb and you see the tomb's empty. And you say, Lord, whatever the circumstances and the trials and the sufferings and the pain I'm going through, the cross is empty and the tomb is empty. And so your love for me has never and will never fail. We don't look at the struggles and the circumstances. We don't look at the wind and the waves. We look at the fact and the truth of the empty cross and the empty tomb. Because in the empty cross and the empty tomb, the Father stamps over our lives, I love you. I love you. I didn't hold back the greatest gift from you when I gave you my son, my only son. I love you that much that he was prepared to die for you and to rise again so that you might know new life and forgiveness. Even the greats struggle. <laughs> I don't know if you're aware of this. John Wesley um, was the great Methodist preacher who led thousands upon thousands to faith in Christ. He writes in his um, autobiography that I was almost in despair. Yeah, this is Wesley, by the way. He did not have the faith to continue to preach. When death stared him in the face, he was fearful and found little comfort in his religion. A Moravian friend, Peter Bowler, he confessed that he he confessed to that he his growing misery and had caused him to give up the ministry. He didn't want to carry on anymore. And Bowler said, no, preach faith till you have faith. And because you have it, you will preach faith. So he tried this out. He led a prisoner to Christ by preaching faith in Christ alone, even though he didn't have that assurance himself. And the prisoner accepted Christ. John was astonished. He'd been struggling for years. He was a man transformed instantly. And John made a study of the New Testament, and he found to his astonishment that the longest recorded delay in salvation was three days while the Apostle Paul waited for his eyes to open. And on May the 24th, 1738, John opened his Bible at about five in the morning, and he came across these words. These are given unto us, exceeding great and precious promises, even that ye should be partakers of the divine nature. He was reading from the King James. <laughs> and in the evening, he reluctantly attended a meeting in Aldersgate. Someone read from Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. And he records about 845, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ. I love this. I felt my heart strangely warmed. Isn't that amazing? I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And after that, Wesley never looked back. He rode on horseback hundreds of miles, preaching the gospel and seeing thousands of people converted. Why? Because the risen Christ met him and changed his heart through the scriptures. So if he can do it for Wesley, he can do it for you and I. So I'm going to finish with this. Be open 
to an encounter with the risen Jesus and act on it? Do you believe when you come to church that you're going to meet the risen Jesus? As the word is preached, as you worship and sing, as you pray, do you believe that the risen Jesus is here and that you can encounter him personally? Good, because he's here. He longs to come alongside and to warm your heart. Isn't that wonderful? Picture him coming alongside you and walking with you this morning, wherever you are, at home or here, just as he did with the two disciples, and opening your eyes to see new truths of wonderment about the cross and the resurrection. Picture him coming alongside you and opening your eyes and understanding to see him in his risen glory. That's how you should come to church, by the way, every Sunday. Or when you open your Bible, whenever it is, first thing in the morning every day or later in the day, I don't know when you do your daily devotion, do you expect to meet the risen Christ? Be open to meeting him. He's everywhere in the pages of the Old Testament and the New Testament. So when you read the Bible, even if you're in Leviticus, right? Read Leviticus through the lens of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Um, you will probably have noticed in 13 years of ministry that I never, ever go through a sermon without bringing focus to Jesus in his cross and resurrection. And that is because all of Scripture points to Jesus. All of it. So there's no point in giving a Sunday school lesson from the Old Testament if you don't take people to Jesus. No point. It's just a moral lesson. You've got to get to Jesus for the heart transformation. So if you're ever in a position where you're doing a Bible study or you're preaching or speaking to a group of people, if you're speaking from the Old Testament, don't ever just leave people with a moral lesson and say, you must do this, because you've only told them half the story. They'll say, how? I can't do that. You say, you can when Jesus encounters your heart and changes you. So in the midst of your struggles, don't believe the lie that God is no longer for you and with you. Keep your eyes on the empty cross and the empty tomb. Be open when you worship God and you fellowship with other Christians to an encounter with the risen Christ. He wants to come alongside you. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to talk to you through his word and through other Christians. And he wants you to talk to him in prayer. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that the empty cross and the empty tomb are your stamp of love across our hearts. Jesus, forgive us when we have bad theology. Lord, forgive us when we decide who you are based on our struggles and trials and not on the empty cross and the empty tomb. Father, forgive us. Father, you love us and you never forsake us. Why? Because Jesus was forsaken for us. And he promises, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And because of the cross and the empty tomb, we are promised that nothing in all creation, nothing, not even death itself, can separate us from the love of God in Christ. There is nothing, no heights, no powers, no depths, no suffering, no evil powers, no darkness can separate us from the love of God in Christ. 
And we worship you, Jesus, this morning. And I pray, Lord, for those here this morning with heavy hearts, those who are despondent. I pray, Jesus, that you would meet with them, that you would warm their hearts, that their hearts would burn through meeting you this morning. And I pray, Lord, for those who have yet to fully come to know you through your cross and resurrection. Lord, I pray that no one would leave this place without praying to know Jesus this morning. And if, there are, if there's someone here, Lord, whose heart is saying, I want to know you, Jesus. I want that relationship of joy and peace that my friend has. I pray, Lord, you'd give them courage to pray with their friend and accept you, Jesus, into their heart this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And we're going to sing. Uh, there's only one song to sing, really, isn't there? In Christ alone, my hope is found. So we're going to sing that. Let's, uh, thank you.
like prayer and you're online after the service please uh, phone the number on the screen there Nigel's or text Nigel on that on that number displayed on on the screen if you'd like prayer here just say to the person next to you let's just pray you know at the end of the service just ask them to pray with you to accept Jesus into your heart let's uh, let's pray together Lord I just speak blessing on all your people now and may the blessing of God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit be with us and remain with us always. Amen. Amen.